from Green Biz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at Green Biz headquarters at 350 Franco Gawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, Siemens Holistic Energy Management, Walmart's blockchain mandate for food suppliers, Public Radio takes on water, and oh yeah, there was that whole UN climate report thing. Is it hot in here or what? This week on 350. It's October 12th, 2018. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me on the complete other side of the United States is Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. <laughs> Hi. I'm on the complete other side of the United States. Where As it I has said. Been, yes, <laughs> where it has been almost 80 degrees pretty much every day this week, so... Yeah. Yay, October. <laughs> yeah, October is our glorious month here in the San Francisco Bay Area. It's been not quite that hot, but it's been, well, actually it's been 80-ish, but it's just glorious uh, 70s and blue sky. And we had uh, Fleet Week and the Hardly Strictly Bluegrass Festival and a bunch of other things this weekend in, in the Bay Area, this past weekend. And Oh my God, it's just, it's really kind of a fun time. And <laughs> yeah, and it's a fun time at Green Biz too, because we are on the verge of our Verge conference coming up uh, Tuesday, but um, it actually starts even Sunday and Mon Sunday night and Monday. Uh, so lots going on in terms of pre events and tutorials and the Renewable Energy Business Alliance, REBA. A conference that starts Sunday night through Tuesday morning. About 400 big energy buyers and and uh, sellers. So yeah, um, are you ready? I will be ready. <laughs> uh, lots of different sessions I'm planning for, which which is a, a blessing and a curse at the same time. I have my brain loves lots of different topics, and I sure have a lot that I'm exploring next week. Everything from circular water strategy to autonomous vehicles and I have the pleasure of doing one of the plenary sessions focused on equity and and it's just a real super pro super compelling project a group of Sioux tribes from South Dakota have gotten together with Apex Clean Energy and so I'm doing a session on that project and what it means for the community there as well as for uh, potentially for the corporate investors. So uh, what about you? What do you got lined up? You know, I've got a bunch of main stage sessions. They all seem to have the word global in it. Um, well, not all of them, but uh, catalyzing a new carbon economy is one of them. Um, uh, unleashing the global circular economy. I guess they all have the word economy in it uh, with um, Kara Hurst from Amazon, uh, Cyrus Wadia from Nike, and I'm um, not sure exactly who from EMF, because the speaker, uh, Andrew Morley, may or may not make it due to some other issues. Uh, global resilience in climate-constrained world with Department of Homeland Security and World Resources Institute and former uh, Assistant Secretary of the Navy, Denny, Dennis McGinn. And then a great session to close out the, the plenary stuff on Thursday um, with Janine Benyus, the uh, mother of biomimicry and um, 
Paul Wolford from the um, architect and design firm HOK talking about reinventing cities and of course all the buildings in them. It's going to be, I just was on a call the other day with them and just, oh my God, fascinating stuff. Oh, and then there's the Circular Plastic Summit that I'm co-hosting with Shauna Rappaport on Thursday. And, um, and I know you've got your hands full with a lot of breakouts. Yeah. So um, I actually am doing a breakout on a topic that we're going to discuss a little bit later, the, the blockchain food nexus. What does that mean? We'll tell you in a little while. And uh, I'm going to be, uh, as I mentioned before, I'm actually running the workshop on self-driving cars 101. And I'm very much looking forward to that because I need an education myself. I'll be uh, skulking around all the showcases, um, including the Clean Energy Equity Showcase. And you'll hear more from um, one of the participants later on in this podcast. Shauna Rappaport um, has interviewed all, all three of the participants. And she weighs in with the final segment a little bit later. So uh, stay tuned. Yeah, and that's that Clean Equity Showcase is part of a, of a bigger theme that we'll have at Verge on equity and inclusion in general. Uh, one of the reasons we've moved this event to uh, Oakland, um, just three blocks from the, the Green Biz 350 office, uh, is to be able to take advantage of, of Oakland, uh, the dynamic, diverse, uh, exciting, problematic city that I'm proud to call my uh, native city and hometown. It's... Um, and a number of different things, engaging local organizations, community organizations, as well as the, the ener clean energy and clean tech community. We're going to be having, as we always do, the uh, Emerging Leaders 10 um, uh, diverse uh, young people from around the United States and I think around the world uh, who we've given scholarships to, thanks to a uh, sponsorship by United Airlines. We're flying them in, putting them up, and giving them uh, letting them come to Verge and going to be integrating them, uh, having some events with them and some of the corporates. And we're also uh, bringing in a second group that's local uh, called Impact Fellows uh, with um, a partnership of an organization called United Roots uh, based here in Oakland that uh, works with uh, some of uh, Oakland's most uh, uh, marginalized, disenfranchised youth uh, from particularly East and West Oakland, helping them uh, get into the legal economy, get some entrepreneurial skills, a number of other things. And uh, we're going to have a group of those fellows as well coming. So this is, um, it's exciting. And um, I think we're, we're going to be doing something um, really exciting. But, yeah. you know, yeah. meanwhile, we're still sort of Writing the crest. Well, I won't say writing the crest because as we're recording this, Hurricane Michael is uh, is entering landfall in Florida and and uh, causing uh, the beginning of what I'm sure will be much more havoc. Bookending, uh, not a great week in terms of the UN UN climate report. I mean, come on, can we get a break here? Um, but you know, let's get into that now in the week in review. So as I said, the week began um, actually late Sunday night, our time, when the uh, United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released a report 
about the risks and benefits of limiting global warming to just one and a half degrees Celsius, about 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit above pre-industrial levels. This is something that came out of the 2015 Paris Agreement. They were asked uh, to come up with this report in, uh, in 2018, and, and here it is. 1.5 degrees of temperature rise, you may recall, was the agreement that the Paris negotiators came to uh, aspirationally. Up to that point, people have been talking about two degrees, and they said, well, that's not good enough. We need to keep it to one and a half degrees. And, you know, the bad news is that we're going to blow through that in the next uh, dozen or so years. And when we do, what we're seeing now in terms of hurricanes, droughts, wildfires, floods, and all those other biblical things um, is just the beginning. And so we're, we ain't seen nothing yet is, is the message here. And so, you know, to the extent that this report was intended to scare the bejesus out of all of us, um, I mean, I think it did that. Of course, Mission accomplished yeah, here. But. Check. Uh, but, you know, politically, um, who knows? It's certainly in the United States. And, in you know, the, the reality is, is that most countries, as it turns out, are struggling uh, with this path to, to keep to the one and a half degree Celsius temperature rise. So, um, oh, my God, we got a lot of work to do. Yeah, you know, you wrote a great piece that helped me understand just the different, you know, the, all the different data points. Um, we also ran a piece from Madeline Cuff, um, one of our uh, frequent contributors from the Business Green um, staff. We, we often reprint some of their analysis um, pieces. And for me, I, I guess, you know, you hear companies talking about two degrees still. So this, for me, the, the real big thing that came out of this, what you already mentioned it, is that's not good enough. You got to be talking 1.5 degrees Celsius as the guide for, for the action that you're taking. And also it's zero or bust, right? I mean, more companies need to be talking about zero carbon, carbon neutrality. And, you know, I think that might start happening a little bit. We have seen a little bit of that. Um, the Global Climate Action Summit had some different intent, if you will. Um, there were companies with different intent coming out of that conference, but I don't know. I I guess also the big, the big, the biggest one or one of the biggest takeaways is we need more national leadership. Um, and you know, how much did we hear out of the Trump administration at all about this? They completely ignored the report, it, not even to say it was ridiculous. Yeah. At least I didn't see anything. Did you? No, they they said it's ridiculous by by, by ignoring not saying it. Anything. Yeah, and and if you have any doubts that this, um, you know, difference between one and a half degrees and two degrees. Uh, uh, isn't is significant. Um, New York Times had a great piece called "Why a Half Degree of Global Warming is a Big Deal," and and they it's a nice pictorial. It's got some infographics, a quick scan, if or, or or even a better read. Looking at you know what that means in terms of how many people, what percent of the world population will be subject to extreme heat or water scarcity or uh, plant and animal extinction or coral reef uh, loss, sea level rise, crop disruptions, and things like that. And it's you know it's 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 real stuff. But you know the other part of that, and I covered this in in the story we ran um, back on Monday was that there was some other bad news. and there's this a couple studies from the international, uh, energy agency, um, well, one's new and one's less new, but it's sort of related, but about the role of petrochemicals uh, being the largest driver 
of global oil consumption coming up. And so plastics aren't just a nuisance and all that plastic pollution. Plastics are becoming uh, a significant uh, and other uses of, of, of biochemicals such as uh, the, their uh, use in pharmaceuticals and, and other sectors. This is becoming a problem at another level, at the climate level, because that's, be, that's goosing the market for petroleum. And it reminded me of another study that came out also from the, uh, well, this is the IEA's, it's World Energy Outlook back in 2017. Uh, there's a new one coming out next month um, it, where they talked about uh, how the increased emissions from the growth of aviation and shipping, ocean-going vessels, uh, over between now and 2040, so how aviation and, and shipping between now and 2040 uh, growth will more than offset the reductions from electric cars. So all those leafs and volts and bolts and Teslas and everything else out there, it's all being offset by more flying and, and shipping. So, ouch. It's ouch, and it's all interconnected. And um, hey, are you optimistic about anything? Well, you know, optimism, I've come to appreciate the difference between optimism and hope. Um, uh, I, I'm hopeful in a lot of ways because there's so many great solutions. That's what Next Week and Verge is all about. It's about solutions. It's about scaling solutions. It's about uh, reinventing value chains and in energy and transportation and, and circular economy and radical disruptions to markets. Um, great, unbelievable hope in all of those solutions and technologies and even policies that we know about or that are in place or coming online. Just not optimistic that we can have the wherewithal, the political and cap political capital, political will, um, and the societal will to do what needs to be done. Do you? What do you think? You know, I, I think if people rally around an idea around uh, these solutions that it, I, I agree. I, I actually didn't think of that sort of difference before, but I like it because I do see so much innovation and I see also companies just being so catalyzed by, I just wrote about Rico. I mean, they're, they're a big Japanese company that focuses on equipment that you would find in an office building. And, and they're, they're going for it. They're going for the whole um, zero carbon model. Um, and the stuff that they're doing in Japan and getting other companies involved, like they were the first, first company from Japan to join the RE100 initiative about a year ago, maybe 16 months ago. And within that span of time, they've actually gotten 11 other com companies on board with them. So it, it, that sort of thing just gives me, um, it makes me optimistic that when, when people focus on this and make it part of their mission in, in their professional and personal life, that, that change is possible, that, that people believe in this. And um, so, yeah, I, th I think we have the tools and I think we just need the resolve and the determination to turn up the heat, if you will, on, on addressing this. Let's not turn up the heat. Um, so let's move over to another story uh, about transportation equity. It's called uh, the Transportation Equity Conundrum, Six Ways Cities Can Improve Mobility Without Displacement. And this is, a, I think, a really, really interesting topic that combines transportation, mobility with equity and inclusion. Uh, talk a little bit about what this, uh, where this came from. Yeah. So first of all, 
The authors, um, James Aloisi and Jared Johnson, are both experts in transportation and transit planning. They're on the board of Transit Matters, which is um, an advocacy organization in Boston that is looking at a lot of the, the planning that, that that city is doing. So city uh, Boston has a tremendous amount of work going on with um, planning for the future of mobility and what does it mean to have delivery trucks on the streets uh, side by side with ride sharing services and so forth. So Boston is very deeply into that. And one of the things that really struck me that the first, first of all, was the definition of equity. There's so many different shades of equity that, that need to be considered within the transition. You need, you need to think about the region itself. So does this region get more money than that region? The, does this neighborhood get more money than that neighborhood when it comes to funding? So you have to consider all of the, the sort of regional um, aspects to equity. There's also the modal question. So is it is it buses that you fund versus ride-sharing services versus a subway? Are you going to reinvent something that's already in place? Are you going to uh, put an entirely new service in place? Um, of course, there is uh, ridership equity. So who's really using this? Is it the people that live next to the transit hub or is it the people that are coming into the transit hub? And um, yes, <laughs> all, all, all of those riders have to be considered. And sometimes you know, these, these planning sessions will call in all the, the local, the, the neighbors of, of, these site, of these projects, but not necessarily the riders of the projects. And finally, of course, there's the impact of, of social equity. So when you build a new train station or a new bus station or a new something, a new uh, multimodal hub, what happens to the neighborhoods around that? And there's some uh, study that the authors cite in the story that points to the, the, the very real fact that a lot of development will start to happen and sort of the, the G word, the gentrification word is, is a very real possibility. So you may, in trying to help certain communities, you may actually hurt them um, because they, they might be sort of costed out of their, their where they live. So I thought, whoa, okay, and you know, it was a nice lens to be to to look at those, you know, think you think about these decisions that you have to make, and you have to look at them through each of those lenses, not just one. And that's a big problem here in Oakland, which is booming right now. Oh my God, you should see the number of city square blocks that have construction cranes in them, and the number, the amount of steel that's coming out of the ground, uh, and the amount of, of of condos that are, I mean, thousands and thousands of condos that are just being completed, about to be occupied. And yeah, there's huge questions about gentrification uh, and who's going to get pushed out. I mean, this, this has been going on for for years, and um, it was you know sent up to a certain extent in the in the movie Blind Spotting, um, you know, about what's going on in Oakland and gentrification and all the Pandora and Uber and and Google and Twitter and all those guys who were coming out over here because. Cost of housing is relative to San Francisco a lot better, and the weather, by the way, is nicer too. And so we're seeing a, a huge, a huge amount of that, and it's a big issue uh, in this year's mayoral race and all kinds of things. And we'll be talking about some of that um, at, at Verge as well. Um, but let's go over to our third story that I want to focus on this week. Walmart has set a new mandate for suppliers of uh, leafy greens to use blockchain. Uh, mm -hmm. Heather, you covered this. Mm -hmm. What up? 
What up? So <laughs> among the many blockchain, uh, potential blockchain applications is supply chain traceability. So Walmart has been testing um, different um, ways of tracing the source and the quality and the temperature of foods that are trans being transported from source to its store shelves. Um, they've been testing it with pork and mangoes for the past 18 months um, in collaboration with IBM and some others. And this, um, this mandate is basically them saying, you know what, this stuff, um, we like what we're, we're seeing. We like the information we're getting from, from those pilots. And we're going to basically um, implement this across our supply chain. So what it is, is um, a new tr food traceability initiative that has been blessed by, actually the letter is blessed and endorsed by four very senior executives. Um, and it basically says to every supplier of, of lettuce or romaine or you know all the leafy greens, um, as of January 2019, you must, have, um, you must be able to share data into um, this blockchain initiative. So basically that means that they have to be able to somehow collect and share that data. It's actually kind of a low, tech investment on their part, it, it really, all you need really to, to provide the information is a, a mobile phone with geolocation. You could um, basically snap a photograph of the field, put some information about the harvest that's, that's come, you know, where, where it came from, when, was, when it was um, picked, what the temperature conditions were, who picked it, etc. And then just Supply you know supply that information up into this, and I think you're scanning barcodes or something too. Yeah, right? well, you it, you don't even have to. I mean, that's that's how. I mean, traditionally at, in the distribution chain, um, you know, at a certain level, yes, you're going to have people scanning barcodes, which many of them have invested in already. So it's there. It's 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 you know, in theory, easy to add this uh, step in. But it, it could be just a person in the field with a mobile phone. That has a you know again a, a geolocation. You have to make sure that you're verifying the location. They collect this data. They can plug it into the phone. Um, and oh by the way, if they don't have service where they are, maybe it's too rural. Once they get to where they are going, they can upload the information. So it was meant to not um, disadvantage anyone that was particularly rural or that or didn't have the money to invest in this. Um, and that's important because um, the direct suppliers, so like the bigger companies that supply Walmart directly, they have till January to comply. People beyond that, so the suppliers of the suppliers have until September 2019. So you do have a lot of smaller organizations, smaller growers that are going to have to think about this. So why are they doing this? So the, the stated reason is to improve safety. So um, as you're aware and, and the listeners of the podcast are aware, there were some pretty high profile um, problems with lettuce last year. And one of the, they were tainted, right? And said there, there were actually even five, unfortunately, five deaths tied to the E. coli um, outbreaks for some of these, um, from, for some of these incidents. And the biggest problem with all of that is they couldn't figure out where the, the source was very quickly. So they basically had to come out and say, don't buy romaine lettuce. So you can imagine, um, you know, they said, we think it's from this region, but we're not sure. As a consumer, are you going to buy romaine lettuce if you don't know if your particular farm is safe? No. So from a, from a you know, 
motivation perspective, Walmart is doing it for food safety um, reasons and to make sure that consumers are safe, but also PS to make sure that their suppliers aren't tainted, quote unquote, by bad publicity, right? So you should be able to verify your source um, and be able to prove that it's safe, that the conditions are okay. And um, you can go back and find these places if there is a problem or if there is an outbreak in the future, you can identify them much more quickly. But there's also, you know, you notice it's called a food traceability initiative. There are so many more implications um, for where this could go. You could think about um, a scheme in which, for example, that, that small grower could be potentially um, motivated to invest in better water conservation practices or regenerative agricultural. And maybe if they could verify that they're doing that by blockchain, they could maybe get a, a better price on their produce. So if you, if you go out and make your farm more, more sustainable, maybe in the future you could be rewarded for that. So even though it's, it's really motivated by safety, it has a lot of broader implications uh, for the future of the supply chain. Yeah, and speed is of the essence here, particularly when there is contamination issues. Uh, this program, I think, is part of the IBM Food Trust uh, network. They're all feeding into that. That's, that's, I guess, the platform they're using. And, and that allows uh, industry to track and share information. And it cuts the time for checking the provenance of food from days or weeks to seconds. And again, if you're trying to find some E. coli, where it went and where it came from and how to stop it and how to warn people, those seconds count. Yeah. And when I, when I spoke to them about it, um, basically Frankie Yanis mentioned, and he's the, the executive um, for food safety and health with Walmart. He's really the, the person ultimately responsible for this. Um, this is a substantive initiative. I mean, this is a lot of products, number one. And, and um, you'd, so you'd think, ooh, they'd all be complaining. And he said that there is broad support for this. That I think it's a really important initiative, one that I think that they'll scale across their, their entire food supply chain. The field of energy management is undergoing a rapid transformation. Large companies and government agencies are increasingly connecting their buildings to the cloud, accessing more data points, discovering new energy supply options, and leveraging innovative financing structures. This transformation is enabling accelerated project development across energy supply, conservation, and generation. Despite these market and technology changes, though, many large organizations are not fully prepared for this new energy future. That was the main finding of a web survey and set of phone interviews with energy management leaders conducted by GreenBiz Research and Siemens. Joining me to discuss the project and the findings is Paul Karp, Director of Research for GreenBiz. Hey, Paul. Hi, Heather. Thanks for having me. So this is the third project that I think we've done with Siemens. What was the goal of this latest collaboration? Yeah, so this is, as you mentioned, the third project that we've done with Siemens. Um, and really the goal here was to look at large companies. So these are, you know, Fortune, you know, Fortune 1000 companies and large government agencies. And we were looking at the way that these companies use data, finance projects, make decisions really across energy, energy efficiency, energy supply, energy generation projects. And so, as you mentioned, you know, we, we conducted a web survey. Uh, we received uh, more than 200 responses, and we uh, conducted phone interviews with eight different leaders across 
uh, healthcare, uh, pharmaceutical companies, tech companies, and really just ask questions about, you know, what motivates them, what are the barriers, uh, what are the best practices, things like that. So which findings did or finding did you find most intriguing? Yeah, I think, you know, in, in digging a little bit deeper, uh, we know that energy can be complex. You know, it's, it's you know, can, can be technical. There are, uh, you know, different market considerations. Um, but in, in diving a little bit deeper, um, you know, a couple interesting findings. The first is that data is is always going to be a challenge. I mean, there are a ton of data points from utility, uh, you know, billing systems, uh, from energy management systems, IoT devices. And we found that 83% of our respondents from these large organizations found that they wanted better data analysis tools. Um, you know, that was one interesting finding. And the other is that, you know, we know it takes a lot of collaboration, both internally and externally to, you know, to, to get large, complex projects done. And the large majority, so 88% of these large organizations told us that they wanted a more comprehensive approach to energy management. So how are they doing mostly? Like, are they, they doing it site by site or building by building right now? Or? It's really a mix. And, and that's what, you know, we found was really interesting is that a lot of different, you know, if you take school districts, for example, you know, those are, are naturally done, you know, on a site by site basis. But a tech company that has a huge data center load might be managing it more centralized or more globally. So it, a lot of it depends on the, you know, just the, the makeup and the footprint of the company itself. And a lot of it is just the culture and, and just the history and the way they make decisions. So there's a huge variance across the board. You mentioned the, the difficulty of getting the right data and of getting, I guess, maybe rich enough data. Um, what, what, what's in the way of that? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think there are a ton of different systems typically within these companies. So you'll have uh, you know, different third-party vendors that will have systems. You'll have proprietary dashboards and different things. But the, the biggest challenge is just really getting all that data in one place so that it can be used. And it's incredibly challenging to to clean and aggregate and make that data accessible across all of these different systems. But you know, some of the people that we talked to did you know found you know we found that they had a a, a pretty good system for managing that data and analyzing it, while others were really just sort of starting out and trying to figure out you know how to get it out of spreadsheets. So, from a high level perspective. Are there any other findings that point to the, the so larger sustainability trends? So within the context of energy management, that that need for holistic um, a holistic approach is that does that match other trends in the in the broader sustainability sector? Yeah, I think so. You know, one of the questions we asked was around you know how aggressive are you is your organization in in setting targets and really you know pushing the needle. And we found that, you know, the majority of companies had greenhouse gas reduction targets, which, you know, is not a big surprise. But things like the science-based targets that are, you know, the science-based targets initiative, which is, start, you know, really starting to, to sort of gain traction. Uh, a number of companies cited, you know, they're, that they're applying or being approved for the science-based targets initiative. So I think things are starting to pick up, but it, it definitely takes time. And I think it takes a lot of you know, internal commitment at a really high level to really encourage these things. Any other big takeaways you'd like to share? Yeah, you know, one thing that we found for sure, and this is, I think, in light of, you know, some of the hurricanes and the fires and just overall challenges, you know, with our, with managing our, you know, our, our you know, our energy systems, 
we found the, the need for resilience. So this was one of our top drivers beyond you know, cost and addressing goals was the need for resilience. So you, you, know, you talk to hospitals like Kaiser and the University Health Network System in Toronto, and these, you know, these companies are really looking towards things like energy storage and microgrids, but tech companies are as well. You know, they're looking to, uh, you know, to mitigate costs and peak demand charges, and there are a number of different drivers out there for why people are moving this direction. But I think it just shows that the markets have gotten you know, more advanced, and then the internal capacity at these companies has, has gotten more sophisticated as well. Hey, so thanks for coming in to the 350 Podcast Studio to talk about the findings. Um, for those of our, our listeners out there who want to learn more about the study, you can look for the white paper produced by GreenBiz and Siemens. It's up on the greenbiz.com site, and you'll be able to find the exact link in the podcast run list. And you can listen to some anecdotal perspective from the archive of a webcast that I hosted earlier this week called The Path to Holistic Energy Management. Here's a highlight from the webcast. The speaker is Jerry Meek, Energy and Sustainability Manager for the big biotech company Genentech, which is based in South San Francisco. So we really have a vested interest um, both financially to meet our goals as a company, but also personally as well to make sure that we meet the corporate goals as well. We've done a lot of great work around reducing of natural gas, but you can only do so far because in biotech, we use significant amounts of energy for cleaning, uh, sterilization. So we're looking at ways where we could reduce the amount of sterilization that we have in some of our processes. And um, our sister companies as well are doing the same thing. And that is when we go to um, the disposable type of, of manufacturing devices for individualized medicines. Um, instead of making large um, bats and vats of uh, product that requires significant amount of cleaning and sterilization, it's if we have smaller um, batches that we make, um, we're finding that our energy consumption is significantly less as well as our quality of our product is actually much better. And we have a lot of qualifications and validation that we need to do for our manufacturing processes and how we run our business. So anytime that we want to make a change uh, to the HVAC, to the processes, it's a lengthy process to validate that any change that we make will not have any adverse impact on the product itself. So qualifying new and different ways to reduce energy consumption through manufacturing and research requires a significant amount of time and resources to evaluate that before we do an implementation. So we have a lengthy process and a lot of times the validation and qualification of these um, steps is far more expensive than the actual price to do the implementation. And here in California, our energy costs have not been flat. Um, you alluded to natural gas in what we're doing in that area. Um, we've seen a 93% price increase in natural gas distribution and transportation. And now with the wildfires here in California, um, we expect significant increases in electricity costs over the next few years as well. But we continue to find ways to reduce energy and utilize the resources that we have more efficiently. Over the last two weeks, we've been featuring interviews with leaders from organizations that put access and equity at the center of their mission. 
In other words, those that are addressing both social and environmental challenges. It's all part of the inaugural Clean Energy Equity Showcase that we're launching in conjunction with our upcoming Verge 18 conference, designed to honor and highlight three Bay Area-based organizations that are doing exemplary work to create inclusive and equitable clean economy workforce development opportunities. I've been speaking with the leaders of each of these organizations and bringing those interviews straight to you listeners of the Green Biz 350 podcast. Last week, you heard from Jody Pincus, who directs Rising Sun Energy Center, and the week before from Erica Mackey, who co-founded Grid Alternatives. Today, I have the honor of speaking with Orson Aguilar, whom we've been honored to have as part of our host committee for Verge 18, and who serves as the president of the Green Lining Institute. Hi, Orson. Hi. Thanks so much for uh, for making the time and for the great work that you are doing on the ground. Thank you. I want to get get your your take. You know, when it comes to the conversation and the work about clean energy and equity around ensuring that we are building a clean economy that works for all, where are we now? I think there are some great conversations about uh, diversity, equity, inclusion in all sectors. Um, but particularly here in California, where we're leading the charge on climate change uh, policies and policies to really tackle uh, climate change. Um, it's exciting to see that the business sector is rolling up its sleeves um, and really saying, you know, California now has a 100% goal that we need to reach um, and we need to do it with equity. And so what, what's awesome is that you have a lot of uh, green business uh companies saying, uh, let's be clean and let's be equitable. And that's uh, great news for us. So talk a little bit about then how that translates on the ground. When we think about the role, the responsibility, the opportunity for the business community, how does that actually translate into creating clean, green jobs and and opportunities to um, improve the lives of the folks and the communities that have been hit the hardest by the old Yeah, at the end of the day, this has to hit the ground in a real way. You know, all communities, you know, communities of color and have the same dreams that other communities have, right? They they want to raise their children in a clean and safe environment. Uh, They want to go to a good school and they want to have a good job opportunity. And so for us, we need to make sure that the policies we work at, whether at the state or regional level, um, lead to that. And so it's up to us to track jobs, who's getting the jobs. Um, we need to make sure that we're creating a pipeline um, in the educational system so that more folks can work in the clean sector and clean tech. Um, and so it's really about making sure that the policy change we advocate for leads to real change on the ground and that, that real change is a cleaner community. It's a better paying job Um, It's a better educational system that will create a pipeline to get more people into clean tech and the clean economy. So talk a little bit about the work that you're doing at Greenlining Institute and how it fits into all of this, both in terms of the policy piece, but also engagement of the private sector, too. Yeah, definitely for us, it's creating a bridge between the communities that we represent, uh, communities of color and low-income communities, and the private sector. Um, As we know that that bridge often has not been there. And what's amazing is that we've been able to really create dialogue with the private sector to say, these are the issues in our communities, right? In our communities, we see a lot of pollution. 
Um, we see poor access to job opportunities. And the companies say, well, we're growing. We're looking for talent. We're looking for employees. Uh, we're looking for a customer base. And we say, well, communities of color are going to be your future customer base, and they can be your future employees as well. And so there's a, there's a natural win-win. And where we come in is trying to find, um, be, a, be a catalyst so that those things actually happen. Uh, people have job opportunities and that at the end of the day, people live in clean and healthy environments. Orson, we're so looking forward to having you on our main stage at our upcoming Verge 18 conference to dive into these topics even further. And um, yeah, to just having your organization have a presence. You've been doing such incredible work, building those bridges between communities, between the, the, the decision makers. And we've, um, we're just so honored to be featuring you in this way. Orson Aguilar is the president of the Greenlining Institute. Thank you so much, Orson. Thank you. We're really honored with the recognition. One of the recent visitors to the Green Biz office is Amy Scotchless Cole, an old friend of ours who uh, headed sustainability at eBay and moved over to a company called Pentair. Also spent some time with Conservation International and now is Managing Director Water for American Public Media. That's the organization in Minneapolis that does a number of uh, radio programs and podcasts, Marketplace, you may know. Hey, Amy. Hey, Joel. Great to be here. We're actually in St. Paul, not Minneapolis. We wouldn't want to get that wrong. I know that well. People call us in San Francisco and we say, no, we're in Oakland. So I, I, sorry about that. St. Paul, Minnesota. Great town. So I have to ask you, why does American Public Media have a managing director for water? So this really grew out of American Public Media's recent strategic plans. So if you think about it, we're kind of like a CSR effort for public media. American Public Media started off as Minnesota Public Radio. We're 50 years old and still thinking about how do we how do we create our public service? How do we think about how we make an impact in the world? And of course, the landscape of media is changing. And so what the water man is all about is how do we connect Americans to something that we think people care about and is really important, which is water. So I take it you're going to use the various assets of American public media. Describe, I mentioned marketplace and podcasts. What else is there? Yeah, so like you mentioned, um, we have our friends at Marketplace, which is actually based in Southern California. We actually reach about 21 million people across the country through a thousand different radio stations. We've got um, shows like The Splendid Table, Live From Here. We also have regional news programming in, across the Midwest and in Southern California. So yeah, we're going to use all of those assets, but we're also really thinking about how do we collaborate with others to figure out how we take an issue that's not on Americans' radar screens today and make it feel really relevant and really important. I have to ask you why water because Minnesota isn't exactly California. It's not water challenge. You've got that great lake there. In fact, you've got 10,000 of them according to your license plates. Yeah, so that is actually for me as a as a recent transplant to Minnesota. I've been there for about 6 years. I find that a really funny question when people ask me that. In Minnesota, we actually think of ourselves as the land of water. Like you said, we've got about 12,000 lakes. We sit on the shores of Lake Superior. And water is such an important part of our culture, our way of life. It's how we define ourselves. It's how we recreate. It's how our cities 
came into being, and we're just really water aware. We have this water ethic, this water value, and I think it's from that that people realized that we've got something in Minnesota that a lot of parts of the country may not have and how much we understand how valuable water is to us. So what's the goal here when we talk in two or three years as you really get rolling here? uh, What do you hope to uh, see happening? Yeah, so I think when you operate at the scale of American public media, you have to think big. So for us, our goal is really about creating a constituency for water, about helping create public will for clean, accessible water. And we think we need to reach at least 10% of adult Americans, so that's about 26 million people, with different types of content and opportunities to think about how water is important in their lives. That's what we call water IQ. It's like the understanding. Do you understand the basics about water? And then the it's relevant in your life and we call that water EQ that it's actually something that's meaningful and that you're ready and willing to to make decisions about. What are the some of the things that surprised you in terms of people's understanding about water? You know, I think one of the things that surprises me is how little people do understand about water. I've seen some recent polls where over half of Americans can't tell you where their water source is, where their water comes from. Another really surprising fact to me is the state of water infrastructure. So I don't think we're talking about this as a country, but different estimates put between, you know, 600 billion to a trillion dollars of investment that we need for the water infrastructure so that when we turn on our tap, clean water comes out. I don't hear that as part of the conversation that's going on across the United States, but that affects every business, that affects every resident. Um, And frankly, I don't know how how we're gonna come up with that kind of money in these kinds of times. What's the message here for business that you'd like to communicate? You've been in uh, corporate responsibility inside big companies, so you know sort of what's going on and how companies Mm -hmm. think about water, among other topics. What do you want to see happen differently? What do you think is the missing ingredient? So I think this is the sleeping giant topic for the corporate sustainability world, right? I am so proud of how far corporate responsibility has come on topics around energy and climate and other issues. But this is one that I don't hear the business community talking about in the way that it needs to. And it's an existential question for business, right? It's really about supply chains. It's about, are you going to have enough water to do what you need to do? Are you going to have the right, the license to operate to get to that water? Is it going to be the quality that you need it to be? And are your employees going to have it when they need it? And the answer to those questions, you know, is really becoming more and more variable in lots of places across the country. When you talk about water, it's hard to do that without talking about climate. Are you concerned at all about that suddenly this conversation about water will get enmeshed in this sort of crazy conversation that's being had, at least in the United States, about climate change? Actually, one of the reasons I took this job is because I think that water is a topic that I hope we can have sane adult conversation around. It's important to all of us. We can't deny that. You can't live more than a few days without it. It operates our economy. Did you know that actually most of the water in the United States is actually used for electricity? Most of the remainder of it is to feed us. These are all facts that can't be argued with. And so I hope that Actually, water is the topic that brings us back together as a country to say we may have our political differences, but actually we have to figure out how to manage these natural resources in ways that make sense today and tomorrow. Well, I would be happy if we had a sane conversation in this country about anything, and if water is the way we do that, I'm all for it. Amy Scotchless cole is the Managing Director for Water at American Public Media in St. Paul, Minnesota. Thanks, Amy. Thanks, Joel. Great to be here. 
Well, that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find more about the stories, organizations, and events we mentioned in this episode. And while you're over there, check out the link to our other podcast, Center Stage. You'll find the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. You can hit us up by email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to hear from you. Also, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that Verge Virtual, the live stream from the uh, Verge 18 plenary sessions, as well as exclusive interviews between speakers and the GreenBiz sidebar hosts, uh, is coming up next week, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. You can tune in to each of those. It's all free. You'll get access not only uh, in real time, but to the full video archive following the event. So uh, we'll send a link to that or just go over to the GreenBiz homepage and you'll find the link the Verge Virtual. GreenBiz 350's director is Stephanie Joyce, and Heather and I will be back next week from Verge 18 for another edition of GreenBiz 350. Until then, from all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening.